Are you a horror hound? Do you like scary movies? Then Moose's Monster Mash is the podcast for you. Moose sits down each month with local and celebrity guests to discuss the things that send chills up your spine. You can find Moose's Monster Mash at electronicmediacollective.com. Check it out before you check out. <laughs> Hi, this is Doug Stone, also known as Psycho Mantis. You're listening to Bullspit with Moose. And me. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bullspit. <laughs> Moose Pack to another all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. Joining me today is a man with many hats. He's an actor, writer, producer, director. His voice can be heard in popular video games like Metal Gear Solid and Dynasty Warriors. Let's find out more about this masked man. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Doug Stone. Hi there. Well, I have to be masked. There's a pandemic, so, you know, I've just got no choice. Yeah, it's interesting that it works out this way. to be the masked way. man, at least when I leave the house. Well, at least you're one of the... Nice isn't the right word. Consider it once. People, uh, sane people, non-conspiratorial theory people. <laughs> <laughs> Any of those will work. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I don't suspect that the lizard people uh, caused this. Uh, just to get me to wear a mask, uh, so that they could take over the planet somehow. I'm. I'm trying to stay away from that kind of thinking. Yeah. There's been many. Many theories. I've given up most of the reading until there's a peer review. Until something comes up that's peer reviewed and has been tested on humans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All we're getting is a lot of speculation. People, I guess, medical people and bacterial people and whomever else like to see their name in the newspaper too. So a lot of people are issuing very premature statements about about the virus and about what might work and might might not work. Uh, and it's all all it does is confuse people and. And, and cause dissension and uh, anger because uh, most of the time, whatever they've said ends up being disproven or at least isn't proven to anyone's satisfaction. So better not to speak of it until we know, I think, for so-called experts, not to speak of it until they have something to say that is actually verifiable and real. See, in the early stages when, when they were doing that, I honestly, I thought the ex, you know, the experts were giving hope to people like, okay, this might work, or this might be when it ends. But now it's just like, shut up. Yeah, enough. Yeah, when, yeah, when people first spoke about it, we thought, oh, maybe they know what they're saying. But then, yeah, it became evident pretty quickly that what we've got is a lot of people who just are yammering. And, of course, it's been politicized, unfortunately, as so much is. And, and Tis the season. Uh, even more disinformation appears because people are politicizing it for their own purposes. And here we are talking about a disease that kills people. It's the last thing in the world that needs to be politicized, used, or, or misused. What we need is, is straightforward, honest, researched information to save lives. We don't need nonsense. But there you go. Human beings, I tell you. Animals are more fun. They don't talk back. Yeah, I'm kind of prejudicial towards them. But if I if I could be somewhere in Thailand right now, petting a baby elephant, I'd be a happy guy. Yeah, 
Me too. Well, let's shift gears from COVID to careers. Mm-hmm. What, uh, how old were you when you, uh, decided that acting was something you wanted to do with your life? To do it full time? I was in my early 30s. I had been acting in school. I had been acting in amateur theater. Uh, so I had been doing performing, but I never, uh, being raised in Toronto, Canada, in my generation, there was very little chance of, of making a living in the entertainment business. My father was a radio announcer, and I thought about that kind of work for a while, but it's not the same as acting, of course. So it wasn't until I reached my early 30s and I began to actually make some money on the side as an actor, uh, actually initially as a voice actor uh, on the side, while I was doing uh, theater at night, that I thought I might possibly be able to just maybe pay the rent uh, by uh, going to the business full time, which at that time didn't mean just voice work, but rather on camera work, stage work, voice work, writing, anything I could get uh, that would that would pay the rent and, and put me in the entertainment business. And so I was, I think, I think I was 32. Is that about the time you decided to pack up from Canada, move to LA, or was there a little that bit was, of a? Uh, that was about three and a half years, three years later. Uh, and that was a decision that um, was not on my mind. Uh, I had been acting up in Canada. I quit my day gig and was fortunate enough where I was making a living in the business. I was doing on-camera acting, um, stage work. I had a, an improvisational comedy group doing sketch and improv comedy uh, dinner theater. and was making money from that, was making money from, from doing uh, commercials, voiceover commercials, not cartoons at that time, because there was none of that kind of work up there at, at that time. I had done an on-camera uh, picture, uh, low-budget uh, feature, and the cinematographer was an older gentleman, very experienced, and he took me aside and said, hey, you're a good, very good actor, who's your agent? And I didn't have a great agent at that time, uh, and he said, well, you should be with somebody good, you're you're good actor. I said, well, thank you, That's very kind of you. And he sent me to an agency in Toronto. On his word, bless his heart, they signed me. Uh, and just coincidentally, uh, within about six to eight months after that, uh, some auditions came up to Canada from L.A. for the Mask Mobile Armored Strike Command cartoon series. It was being produced by French, United States, and Canadian companies in partnership. And although it was recording in L.A., they were going to use Canadian actors and the uh, what was called uh, the Canadian Union Actra, actors who uh, were members of the Canadian Union, actor being like SAG in the States. Uh, and I was a member of the union already from, from my other work. So I auditioned for it uh, and very fortunately was cast uh, long distance uh, after about four auditions uh, from the L.A. director up into Canada uh, for three roles and then came to L.A., got in the series, ended up doing eight roles and uh, it ended up being 65 episodes. And it was on that basis that I moved here. I was working on that show and again got encouragement down here from um, the studio owner, from the directors, etc., uh, etc., et uh, who said, hey, you're good enough to work in L.A. doing voiceover, which I had never even thought of. I, I always thought I couldn't compete in that kind of a marketplace. 
but they were very encouraging and said, no, you're good enough to, to work here. So um, I thought that would be uh, the way to go and, and that I'd have a much better chance at, uh, at making a reasonable living in L.A. doing that kind of work than I would in Toronto. And that's what got me here back in 1985. Well, I'm glad you ended up on Mask. And working with this, uh, setting up for this interview worked out because I got to go back and rewatch Mask for uh, Nessie. I got to say it was for research purposes. Really, I just wanted to go back and rewatch the show. <laughs> right. Now, Mask was one of those shows where it was very similar to you know the rest of the shows that came out around the time, except it had a rotating cast of heroes. And it was kind of like G.I. Joe meets Transformers, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this super elite team of physical specimens. Your guy, uh, your main voice, Matt, was uh, essentially a billionaire, if I'm not mistaken. So I know he's... He yeah, was, yeah. You know, so... Like a Bruce Wayne type, yeah. of, of, a very rich man who was benevolent and wanted to help humankind. Yeah, and then there's, you know, a truck driver and, you know, a, a motorcyclist. And, I mean, it's just, as a kid watching that show... Yep, school teacher. That, w- that, that seemed like if you wanted to join a superhero team, that team seemed more attainable to get onto because you didn't need superpowers. Right. You just needed to want to help people. Yeah. Yeah. Bravery and some intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure Matt probably had a whole screening process when he chose his, initially chose the team of who would he was going to work with. But yeah, you didn't have to be born wealthy. You didn't have to be born with a, the power to see through walls or become invisible or anything else. You just had to be well-meaning and pretty good physical shape and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, I, I liked the human, uh, that was the fun part of acting on the show as well, was that they were very human and they had their own little idiosyncrasies and et cetera, which, which kept them more real and kept it, kept it grounded. Oh yeah. I mean, th- th- there was, you know, an even more human element. There was the re- relationship between Matt and his son mm-hmm. who, uh, Insisted in being involved in like every mission. Yeah, you know, you always that was always something. He'd always sneak along with the robot, which really helped draw kids in because kids are like, "Ooh, what's going on?" You know, let, let, let's see what let's see what the adults are doing. Yeah, that could be me. I think I think that was probably the purpose of it. Was a lot of the kids thought that could be me, and I could be tagging along in those adventures. Yeah, and yeah, it just. There, there were so many different layers to the show that it, it's weird that it's kind of gotten lost over time. Like, it kind of got lost in the shuffle. These things happen for a, a myriad of reasons, and sometimes it's business reasons. You know, we'll see movies or shows that we really like that'll drop off the earth, and we'll go, wow, I thought that had a bit strong audience. I wonder why the so-and-so TV show or the so-and-so film doesn't show anymore, and it'll turn out that it was... Uh, some sort of lawsuit or something was involved or, you know, these kind of things that are behind the scenes. And in part with Mask, I I suspect that's partly what happened in that um, the show got sold a few different times uh, to European companies. And it apparently showed, kept showing in reruns in Europe long after it stopped being shown in the United States. So it did still have an audience, and it was still popular, but the American audiences weren't getting to see it. So I don't know quite what happened. 
cheeky buggers. Uh, I do know that we missed out as actors. We were not paid all the proper residuals that we were supposed to be paid for reshowings of the show. Because it got sold to so many companies, our contracts apparently got lost somewhere along the way, or so it was claimed when we uh, investigated later. Uh, and so when those shows were shown in Europe, we did not receive paychecks, uh, which we were in, uh, legally supposed to do. So weird thing, and, and we weren't the first ones that's happened to. It's happened to other people with, with live action shows and animated shows. It's just the, the nasty business side of the business sometimes, unfortunately, that goes on behind the scenes. Seems a little convenient. You know, a show gets yeah, sold. And- yeah. Well, we could have certainly used a couple of checks for, for the work we did. But Yeah. Of the characters you voiced, did, did you have a, uh, a favorite one that you uh, liked to do on Mask, or were they all pretty much, did, did you like your different voices for different reasons? Yeah, pretty much like them all for different reasons. I think when you're acting, uh, you have to like your character. You know, even if you're playing somebody who is, quote, the villain in a piece, whether that's on camera or or uh, voiceover, you have to believe in them. You have to believe that what they're doing and saying is justifiable and, and rational and real and makes perfect sense to you because you want to be honest that n- nobody walks around saying I'm the villain. Uh, I did like Bruce Sato a lot. I admit to having a, a, a soft spot for Bruce with his, uh, with his odd sayings and whatnot. Um, and I liked Matt a lot too, but they were all, they were all fun. And then I got to do villains as well. I started off just doing three heroes. It was initially, if I recall correctly, I think it was initially Hondo, Bruce, and Matt that I was cast for. And then it expanded into a few more heroes. And then I got to do some bad guys with like Nash Gorey and some others. And of course that was fun. I think I, I think I remember Nash. I think Nash was somewhere voice said something like that in there, as I recall. But um, hey, he was fun too. <laughs> he also had a really good run with a loop group. Yeah, looping. Yeah, yeah. I've done about a over a thousand TV shows and films that I've supplied voices for uh, as a in, uh, a looper, which. Um, most people don't realize in most uh, all the films that you see and all the dramas you see on TV, the only people who speak are the principal actors. No one else speaks. So all the other voices you hear are supplied by a group of voiceover actors. Will be the will and will sometimes even replace voices or match voices of actors. I've uh, uh, replaced entire performances in films of actors and other times voice matched actors who couldn't come in or were uncomfortable doing fight scenes, etc. And then I had my own loop group and we, uh, I did about 250 shows with my own, the primary shows being the Hercules and Xena shows of the nineties that, uh, we supplied all the voices for. We were all the monsters, all the villagers, everybody other than Herc and Xena and the main characters was uh, my group of voice actors. That's a hell of a credit. I mean... Yeah, yeah, it was terrific. Terrific. Over 200 episodes, of, uh, I guess, at about six years' time. And I won a few awards for uh, voiceover casting, some uh, Golden Wheel Awards. I won five for um, when I had a loop group and three of them came under the Hercules, Xena, and Young Hercules shows. So that was cool too. That that we got recognition for the work we did from our 
from our peers. That's awesome. I mean, without, I, I, I hate to refer to it as background noise, but without background noise, the, the shows would have been kind of boring. Yeah, and it's it's not all background. Some of it is. Yeah. Some of it is strictly the background, just the hubbub of people in the train station, for instance. That's that's looping, and that's Walla, and and that's not brain surgery. But to voice replace and voice match people, or to look at a, a somebody on camera, an extra on camera who was moving their mouth, not speaking, and you come in and they say, what could he possibly be saying? And you kind of lip read the mouth movements and decide something that will fit perfectly, and then voice voice him, and then maybe voice another character, and voice in uh, different languages, voice with different accents. I spent an entire day with Gary Oldman, where Mr. Oldman thought I was British. Uh, he had directed a film called Nil by Mouth, and only wanted British British working class actors on the film to do the voice work of all the actors that were in bars and on the street and whatnot. And they only wanted working class Brits. But they couldn't find any that had the voiceover experience. There wasn't any they could find in L.A. who could do all the lip sync and uh, voice replacement work. So two of us were told to report and come and do the show. We weren't allowed to tell Mr. Oldman we weren't British, and we had to pretend we were British. All He was there directing the session. And all day long, we just had to pretend we were British along with the actual Brits who uh, did voice work too. But then whenever there was difficult stuff, myself and this other gentleman, Randy, would step up and we'd do all the difficult work. Uh, but the whole time, we had to pretend, because Gary Oldman would get angry otherwise, apparently, we had to pretend we were from Britain's. And he didn't catch on all day. So, you know, there is some... If you can fool Gary Oldman all day, yeah, <laughs> there is some skill involved uh, in in what we do. You mentioned uh, voice matching. Off the top of your head, do you remember uh, any of the times you've had to do voice matching or voice replacement? Joe Pesci. Many years ago, Joe Pesci doesn't like to go in and do his own. I had my Joe Pesci is very rusty. Um, sure, I got a fucking square to do Joe Pesci. It's the only way I can get there. Uh, but Joe Pesci doesn't like to do uh, studio work. He hates uh, dubbing or looping himself and fixing his own lines. Sometimes what happens is uh, on set, a play will go over in the middle of somebody speaking. And they'll say, oh, okay, don't worry about it. We'll get it in post-production. In other words, when it's studio time, sound studio time, the actor will come in and redo their line in front of a microphone so that it's clean. But some actors hate Doing that, and Joe Pesci was among them. So Joe Pesci, um, Sean Penn, um, in the the uh, Madman and the Professor um, film with um, oh, I've lost his name, but anyway, um, a more recent film. Um, I didn't match Danny DeVito, but I did Danny DeVito in a cartoon where uh, it was a Danny DeVito for a Lego uh, cartoon. Um, they wanted the mayor to sound like Danny DeVito. So uh, <laughs> I did Danny DeVito for that. And he was the mayor. <laughs> he wasn't too honest. So something like that. Again, these are rusty because ordinarily what I do is get online, go to YouTube and listen to the people and practice a bit before I, I do them. So you're you're getting my rusty versions. Hey, it's close um, enough. <laughs> other times it was just uh, voice matching people who might not have been famous, but uh, people who did uh, sometimes films are shot with budgets where they uh, shoot overseas and they'll use some European actors as well as American actors. Once in a while, they'll feel that the European actor's accent is a little too thick for the American audience. 
So you might go in and redo some of their lines, or I have done complete reperformances of actors uh, who they felt had too strong an accent. Um, a Michael Caine film, Journey to the Heart of the World, I think it was called, or something, in the 90s, there was a Japanese actor who played his, uh, I don't know if he was the captain or the first mate, I can't recall. I didn't feel he had a very strong accent, and I certainly understood everything he was saying, but they felt American audiences, sorry, my cats are, just got into a paper bag, <laughs> and the other cat's now attacking the paper bag, of course, because there's friends in it, so I'll move away from there, got a little noisy. Um, but the studio felt that uh, that Americans might not be able to understand the actor. So unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, in that I got paid, but I felt bad for that actor. Uh, I replaced his entire performance. And this happens quite often, this sort of thing. But, of course, audiences have no awareness of it. Uh, sometimes songs are, uh, I don't sing, but I know other actors who do. And they've sung for famous actors on camera in films and TV shows. They've done the singing for them. And uh, it's not advertised, and people don't know it, and they assume that they're hearing the star do it, but it's not that not the case at all. Well, like uh, the one I could think of off the top of my head, uh, George Clooney in uh... exactly. But Clooney, bless his heart, is very open about it. Clooney, yeah. in interviews, has said, "I can't." He said, "I'm Rosemary Clooney's n nephew. You'd think I could sing, but I can't." And uh, so he's been very forthcoming about it. Yeah, but not everybody is. He's. I think he's a pretty. I think he's a guy who has a sense of humor about himself. Yeah, yeah. And I, the the I can't think of the, the singer's name, but I I remember an interview with uh, him and the guy's wife was like, I love it. Yeah, I get to hear your voice and picture George Clooney. Yeah, isn't that funny? I just watched that same video recently. Uh, inside. Um, uh, inside the films or whatever else and I, I happened to just within a few days ago saw the interview with the singer where he said yeah that was my wife's fantasy I explained to her you'll see my voice coming out of George Clooney's body and she went oh my god all my dreams have come true yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I thought that was very cute and he had a good sense of humor about it too um in the same vein of dubbing, is it more difficult to dub anime than it is to dub live action stuff? Because I know you were, you did some work on uh, Power Rangers. Uh, live action is much more difficult. That's I just was working this morning on a live action uh, for Netflix. Um, I, because of the pandemic, I'm working from home, and uh, which includes dubbing from home, which is uh, brand new to me, brand new to all of us really. But actually, I just had a two hour session this morning doing a live action show. And uh, live action is more difficult because the articulation of the mouths is much more specific than it is in animation. Animation, they tend not to, uh, in anime, there's not a lot of mouth shapes that that you get. It's mainly open, closed. Occasionally, they'll make a round mouth, like a, so you know it's a vowel and an ooh or an o oh or whatever. But it's, it's not nearly as subtly articulated. Writing the scripts for the live action is much more difficult, hence pays more. Uh, and uh, and it's more difficult to to nail the lip sync than it than it is for uh, for animation, be it anime or, or wherever the animation may be coming from. Once I found out that's how that system worked, I often wondered how the dubbing worked for like Power Rangers and some of the other shows that uh, Saban. Uh, companies did where they used the footage from like Japan and right. then brought it over. 
Yeah, I've wrote on some, I mean, I've voiced on some of those, and I think I wrote some of those early ones before I stopped writing ADR scripts, dubbing scripts. But, um, yeah, uh, for live action, uh, it is it is more difficult, and, and hence, uh, at least when I was doing it, and I assume it's still the same, uh, it pays more for, uh, for the uh, adapters uh, when they're doing live action scripts than it does for uh, uh, animation. It's a slower process. It's slower to write, and it's slower to do the dubbing because you have to be more meticulous when you're doing foreign language work. Power Rangers, yeah, Power Rangers was a funny thing. I was doing Mask, and the Saban Company, who put out Power Rangers, at that point did not have any of their own projects or products, I don't believe, but they had some footage they had purchased and they had theorized that maybe they could do something with it. it was early footage of what was to be Power Rangers. And they didn't know any actors. They called Deke, the company we were working for, and said, do you have any actors you could send over that we could hire to try to do this? We're trying to replace the voices. We want to see if we can sell something. They said, okay, well, they asked the mask crew, would we be interested in going over and doing this thing where you're dubbing? I'd never done it before. I said, well, that sounds interesting. You know, a new skill. I'd like to try it. So I think we all went over. And, of course, we were daunted at first. We'd never done voice replacement. Mask was original animation. You do the voicing and then they animate. So this was new to us. But I kind of caught on quickly, and I even rewrote a line or two, and uh, that apparently impressed them. And uh, But a year later, eight months later, when they actually started to, to work on Power Rangers, uh, they contacted me and said, would you be interested in working on this, on writing some of the scripts and directing? We were in negotiations uh, to do that, and then somebody else came on board. I was I had gone back to Canada for a short period, so we were negotiating long distance, and then they got somebody who had more experience than I did. I was a newbie uh, in doing uh, uh, dubbing, and he came on board and took over the uh, Bob Barron. He's passed away now. He took over the franchise for them, or got it started at least. And then it went from there until they had several different directors uh, by the end. And a lot of people writing the scripts. And at that point, I was just, uh, uh, I think I wrote some of the scripts and, and was voice talent. But that was my first experience dubbing anything was footage on Power Rangers that before it was Power Rangers. That's crazy. And yeah, it was just, uh, they had a little, uh, they had a place on... Saying, look at the powerhouse it became. Yeah, it became massive. Yeah, yeah, nobody suspected. I mean, I can remember looking at the footage thinking, well, this is the weirdest stuff I've ever seen. But, okay, they're paying us to be here. So, uh, you know, we did our best to, to try to make something of it, but I couldn't imagine what they were going to do with it. But uh, they, they figured out the formula that worked. And then you've done anime and animation. Yeah. Original animation and anime, yeah. Is there a difference in how you approach those with doing voices? Because like, obviously with animation, you're going in, with both of them, you're going in reading a script. But... Yeah, you're, 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 you have a lot more freedom with animation or with games, with um, interactive games. If they haven't been animated before you get there, then you're essentially creating the character, vocally creating the character, and you're not restricted by what the animation is. If, uh, if I'm doing anime, I may feel like, boy, I'd love to draw out this word and dramatize that word and take a pause here. That, to me, would be the, the best way to say this uh, these two sentences. I don't get to do that because that's not the way it's been animated. It's been animated with a pause in an entirely different place where I wouldn't normally take a pause 
Well, where I may not even feel a pause is, is, is proper. So I have to take that challenge of now finding a way to justify the pause that exists physically in the animation and making it work as an actor. So it's very challenging. Um, with original animation, which surprisingly I would say is less challenging technically, but pays much better, original animation, um, I get to do whatever I want. When I was doing um, uh, Psycho Mantis, uh, all I had to do was please myself and the director. And I could deliver the line the way I felt my character should deliver the line. Take a pause where I wanted to, stretch out the words I felt needed to be stretched, emphasize what I felt was the, the dramatic uh, portion, underplay what I wanted, etc. So you get a lot more freedom if you're the originator of the role. That was always an interesting, because I was wondering, again, because you look at it and it's like, okay, that's obviously, that that's not the original voice that came with the character in anime. Right. So it's like, okay, that seems like an arduous process of lip sync and getting... Yeah, and there are some uh, actors who won't do it. Uh, it drives them crazy. It's so specific and so technical, uh, anime, because you're having to work against existing animation, that there are some actors who just don't have the patience or the, the skill level. They don't see the lip sync that way, and they just have too many problems with it and don't want to bother with it. So it's there is a crossover. There are people who do both, but there are a lot of people who only do one and not the other. Well, it seems anime is would be right in uh, the wheelhouse for ADR and loop group uh, workers. Yeah. Uh, if loop group people, uh, I mean, I did, I did uh, anime first, then I went into looping and that the skill set really helped me. I already knew how to improvise. Uh, I already knew how to uh, do languages, uh, accents, but having that skill of lip sync was invaluable in looping. But you don't get a lot of loopers, if they're active at looping, not a lot of them are going to do anime because of the pay difference. Again, it's difficult for people outside the business to to... It's not something they would think about. They just know what, you know, the entertainment they enjoy. But when you're in the profession, you obviously have to look at what pays the best, what's going to pay my bills. Uh, looping work, uh, is the same as on camera work in that it pays residuals. So if I loop on, like I looped on shows like ER and Chicago Hope and big medical shows back in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, I still get checks for that. I still get residual checks for the work I did when those things show again on network TV or cable. But anime that I did, even if I did it yesterday, I get one payment only and never get paid again. There's no residual scheme uh, in place. And the hourly rate is uh, much uh, less than it would be if I was looping or if I was doing original animation. So uh, most people, if they're making a living doing animation and looping, if that's their mainstay, they, they are not very often going to want to bother with anime. Interesting. It just economically doesn't make sense for no. them if they're doing enough of the other. It, it, for some, it's a mix of all. You know, for some, they might only be looping once or twice a month. Uh, so they're not making their, their living off it. I mean, I was in my heyday when I was lucky, I was doing five or six shows a week. So that was, I stopped doing anime for about six, six years, seven years in the, uh, 
late 90s, early 2000s because I didn't have time and it wasn't economically feasible for me, to be quite frank. I was making too much money doing the other work to, to spend time with anime. But I was happy that when the looping work, uh, uh, my, I got problems with my legs, with, uh, with uh, arthritis and whatever, and I couldn't be on my feet as much anymore. Looping work, you're, you're standing in studio and moving. You do all the physicality that the people on screen do. You essentially imitate. If they're walking around someplace, you're walking around. You may be <laughs> trying to walk up, acting like you're walking up a hill or whatever. I mean, uh, I used to do the efforts for Superman on uh, the TV show Lois and Superman or whatever. You imitate all those physical things when you're doing a fight. You imitate, you use your gut, you use um, your body to imitate those sounds to make them accurate. So it's actually physically challenging sometimes to loop. And I got to a point where I simply couldn't do it. So it was great that anime work was still there and I went back to it because it's something I can do uh, without as much physical stress but it does not pay as well as, as the looping and original animation work does did you just say you did the fight sounds on uh, was it Adventures of Lois and Clark yeah that's right not on every show but yeah the shows that I looped uh, they generally I got known as somebody who was good with fight stuff uh, I'd been doing it in, in dubbed movies and then my own company did the early Jackie, Jackie Chan pictures uh, for Golden Harvest Pictures was my client, and we did those. So I had a reputation for being really good at catching fight stuff on the fly. So, uh, yeah, Lois and Clark, uh, I would do some of the Superman uh, stuff because, uh, again, the, the major actors don't do all that work. They don't do their own efforts vocally. It's, it's a voice group person who will do that usually. That's crazy. See, and this is why I like doing these interviews. Yeah, they're not going to bring him in for that. I mean, there's some that like to. They want to do everything, and I get it. I, I'd want to do everything myself. But some, you know, they move on to other projects, or they're busy in Europe, and they're shooting another film, and here you are four months later, and you, you need um, the sounds of Superman taking off and landing on a building and punching a hole through a wall, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the actor's busy. He's on set. He's record, You know, he's shooting new episodes. The loop group's right there. We're doing everything else. Have us do the efforts, too. Yeah. And usually I could do them. I could do a whole scene in one take. Usually, I'm not saying I'm the only one who could. There are others could as well. But but because that's our specialty, we could usually usually do it much quicker than the the uh, on camera actor anyway. Because that's not what they specialize in. Well, let's segue into probably your uh, most well known villain, and that's uh, Psycho Mantis, right from the Metal Gear uh, uh, series. Mm-hmm. When I set this interview up, a friend of mine is looking. He's like, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure who this is. And he's looking through the list. He goes, I know who that is. <laughs> he goes, that's my favorite villain. Ah, cool. And I found the more that I dug in, Mantis has quite the following. Yeah, what's cool is Psycho, I don't tend to look at a lot of my own stuff online or whatever, but I did look up uh, villains uh, one time a couple of years ago just to see, hey, do people still talk about Psycho Mantis? Is he, is he remembered or whatever? And there he was on several people's top 10 villain lists. He was still on the, the lists uh, uh, of a lot of different sites. So apparently he's... Uh, He's retained his notoriety over the years with uh, with fans, which is great. Yeah, it's just like, this is crazy. I mean, you know, who would have thought a character from a video game can stay in the top ten villains 
with fans, you know, all these years later, and will yeah. probably still stay because Metal Gear itself has such a huge following. I mean, that's that, that's mind blowing. Yeah, it's cool. well. Again, the, these are the things you never know when you're working, like on Mask. 1985 and 86, I had no idea I'd be talking about Mask in 2020. I never would have, if I was taking bets, I'd have put down a hundred bucks. No way anybody's going to remember this in 10 years. Uh, When you're doing these roles, you have no idea which ones might be iconic. You might be doing a role and you think, this is a wonderful role. I love it. It's juicy. It's great. I'm enjoying this. And nobody ever talks about it. Nobody ever seems to notice it ever happened. You go, oh, oh. Oh, well. And then something else comes along, and like Psycho, although I did enjoy him. Uh, and here we are talking about him almost 20 years later, or maybe it is 20 years now. I can't remember when I did the first recording of him. It was like 1998 to 2002, somewhere in there, so somewhere around 20 years ago. And I had I knew he was cool. I really liked what they'd written, and I liked, I felt strong about my choices and about what I was doing, but I had no idea that 20 years later anybody would remember a thing about it. So yeah, then here we are again, like you said, 20 years later, and he's still top 10 villain. He has, like, I've seen psycho fan sites. I've stumbled across psycho fan fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of taken on a world of his own. Oh, yeah. I was at a, a convention that was for Mask, a retro, retro convention in Philadelphia, and I was there to talk about Mask. And I, that's all I brought with me was Mask pictures and et cetera. So I don't do many conventions, but they asked me to come specifically for Mask. They were nice people. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, and friends had recommended them to me, so I went and did the convention. Normally, I feel kind of uncomfortable at conventions. I don't know, just me. But anyway, there I am, and suddenly people are putting controllers in things in front of me for me to sign. And I was puzzled at first, and I was saying, well, what is that for? They said, you don't know what this is? No. What does it have to do with Mask? They said, not Mask. Mask is controller, Psychomantis. I went, oh, hell, damn. I forgot all completely that Psycho had, that was part of what Psycho did was take over everybody's controllers and <laughs> make them hum and, and shake. I forgot, you know, I completely forgot about it because I wasn't there for that. Um, but there they were. They'd come to the convention. They said, to hell with Mask. We want to meet the Psycho guy and get something autographed. So it was kind of funny to be actually autographing um, computer controllers, you know, game controllers. The lives we live. It's, yeah, you just never know where your path's going to take you, and you don't know what's going to stick, what's going to resonate. Just as we don't know in life, in our relationships and and, and our jobs and everything else, we don't know what's going to res- end up resonating longer. Um, voiceover and acting is, is not dissimilar. You really don't know. When you, so you just give everything you've got for every role you do. You do your very best. Just try to honor the work and do your very best. And it goes where it goes. You can't. We, the actors, obviously can't control it. But you have to go, to, go on the assumption that it's going to be important to somebody and that it matters. And just honor it and, and do your best. And then sometimes, yeah, 35 years later... I mean, I honored Matt. When I did Matt Tracker, I really wanted, I thought about him as a single dad. I really wanted him to be the most decent, kind, law-abiding man. You know, I really tried to put something in him, in, in, as, as I did with all of them, because uh, I felt like that's what, I, that's what my job is. That's what I'm being paid to do, and, and he's a very honorable man, a character. And then I meet people who are 
40 years old, 45 years old, who say, I watched that cartoon when I was five years old, and Matt Tracker was like a father figure to me. I go, oh my goodness, I had no, I mean, I didn't think of it at the time that that is what effect it might be having on kids. I just knew I had to do my best uh, to be an honest at my craft. But you don't know what effect you're going to have on people. You don't know what it might end up meaning to some people. So all the more reason to honor honor it and do it right. Give it your best. I know you're not really, not necessarily not actively searching, but you're uh, uh, kind of winding down and, you know, you, you, you're not taking as many roles and doing as much no. directing and writing and stuff like that. Yeah, not not writing or directing at all anymore. Not casting anymore. Just uh, just acting and yeah, and not not nearly as much as I used to do. No. Uh, do you have say one role you would really like to tackle? Yeah, uh, it's a real life role uh, that I've taken on. Um, I've always been an animal lover. And uh, since I came to L.A. in 1985, I was adopted by a little cat in 1986 that showed up at my doorstep. And I let in the house. I wasn't really a cat person. I didn't know much about them. But this young cat, Sparky, uh, ended up being the best buddy, my best friend for many years. And that got me interested in cats. And I've had at least one ever since. There's one staring at me right now, my special needs boy, Rocky. Just walked over to, hiya, buddy. Yeah, I'm talking about cats. Um, he has uh, cerebular hypoplasia, which is a, a neurological disorder, which makes it difficult for him to walk. Uh, but I adopted him about a year and almost a year and a half ago now, and it's remarkable uh, the improvement he's had now that he's in a home. But about uh, eight years ago, I decided, uh, since I had more time and I wasn't devoting as much time to my career, um, to investigate uh, volunteer work. And I ended up finding a shelter, a no-kill cat shelter that does street rescue, rescues uh, cats uh, that are they're called feral, which may, just really means they're cats that had the misfortune to be born on the street. And uh, we rescue and control the population humanely through trap, neuter, and return. Uh, we take in the youngsters and the mamas uh, that are at risk of being euthanized at kill shelters. We rescue from the streets and we socialize the cats and then put them up for adoption. So we rescue thousands upon thousands of these little guys. And that's where Rocky came from. His name is Rocky McWiggles, this gentleman. And uh, Rocky was uh, a rescue uh, that came to us that had been found on the street. Uh, his mom had been hit by a car and uh, he was orphaned and uh, was taken in by kind people and made his way finally to our shelter where I fell in love with him and his, his strong spirit and um, brought him to join our family. Saying that would be the Kitty Bungalow Charm School for Wayward Cats? Exactly, the Kitty Bungalow Charm School for Wayward Cats in Los Angeles. 100% no kill rescue. Uh, we're an, uh, a non profit. Uh, we've grown, we started out in somebody's backyard. Um, then we ended up building a shelter in the yard uh, on one floor of a little building. And now we have a house that we've converted into a shelter. So we've been growing and growing. It's been around for about 10 years. I've been involved for uh, eight, it'll be eight years in, in August. Um, and I started off as a volunteer doing one or two shifts a week, then became regularly involved two shifts a week. Then I, we didn't have anybody helping with volunteer work, volunteer coordination. So I said, you don't need to pay me. I've coordinated actors for years 
you know, I've, I've cast games with 65, 70 actors at a time where I've had to coordinate schedules and whatever. Let me help. So uh, I got involved with the volunteer coordination, and now we have enough staff uh, where that's taken care of, and I don't have to do it. So instead, I've joined the board, uh, and I work on fundraising. And in fact, in November, this past November, we had our first uh, voiceover auction called Voices for the Voiceless, where I was able to get about, oh gosh, about 60 or 70 voice actors, uh, many of them very well known, uh, who uh, were kind enough to donate either signed swag, photos, or t-shirts, or uh, they would create a personalized voiceover message, outgoing voiceover message for the highest bidder. So if you had a favorite anime character that one of these people did, and you were the highest bidder, you could write uh, a short uh, PG message, and uh, they would uh, leave it on your voiceover machine. So uh, from then on, when people called you, they'd get, you know, whatever that character was, Psychomantis or whomever, uh, saying so-and-so isn't here right now, but I can read your mind. I know you want to leave a message, so leave it at the tone. In the case of Psychomantis, of course, he could read minds. So, yeah, that's that's been my big passion these past years is, is uh, just getting involved in saving animal lives. And we've saved dogs, too. I mean, we've any animal that comes along, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to help it. But our primary uh, goal is uh, the overpopulation of cats, because there's way more feral cats in the street than there are uh, dogs out on the streets. So I'm looking at the stats from the last, four, the, from the website, and they have them listed from 2015 to 2019. Right. And in 2015, it was 212 adoptions, 88 homeschools, and 975 TNRs. Right. Now, two years later, you guys added the Working Cats program. Right. Which, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. When you get a feral cat that's old enough uh, where it can't really be socialized, some of them have been out in the street and frightened for so long that even though we're very good at socializing frightened cats, some of them just, it's impossible. But they're not so feral that they won't be near people or allow people to feed them or to allow people to be within a couple of feet of them. But they won't allow themselves to be petted. They won't be in a home. They will never sit in your lap, etc. So they're kind of in between. Where, where they're reliant on people, they're okay with people around, but they're never going to be a house cat. So we developed a working cat program. So we get people who have breweries, people who have horse farms, places where they might have a rodent problem. And they don't want to control it with poisons, particularly if they're a brewery and, and uh, they're brewing things that are going to be for human consumption. But we've even had clothing stores and uh, mattress stores where mice burrow into the mattresses. And instead, what they do is get some of our working cats. Um, the salary is very cheap. It's just uh, food and shelter. And uh, the cats are housed at their uh, uh, barn or their warehouse or wherever. They take care of them. They supply them with food and care, medical care if they need it. And they are the house mousers. They make sure that no rodents or bugs or anything else gets into your uh, business and destroys any of your product or infects it uh, with feces or anything else. So they are working cats, and they've been very happily housed. We've, even, we've driven some all the way to Colorado from here uh, for horse farms. Um, 
So it's been a very successful program, and the cats are very happy. You know, we, we obviously check out the people thoroughly. They build uh, structures where the cats are housed, where the cats can go in and have shelter at night. And uh, they have their litter boxes and their food and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the cats can live out their lives there out of danger of the city streets of cars and, and foxes and, and, and all the predators that might hurt them in the cities and the outskirts of the cities like a city like Los Angeles there are a lot of animal predators too for, for cats um, and as I say it's been a very successful program and once in a while one of them will say you know what I decided I want to be a house cat and we'll get contacted by one of the businesses and it's always fun to see and there'll be a picture of one of our working cats sitting on a couch in somebody's house and they'll say he decided he wanted to come, in, come inside and be a house cat after all <laughs> And uh, they'll just turn into a, a house kitty instead. Oh, that's good. But in most cases, they remain uh, they remain working cats. You're right. I mean, the, the the numbers are showing that the program seems to work. I mean, as of last year, it was 370 adoptions, 150 homeschools, 1,370 TNRs, and 268 right. working cats. I mean, right. The, the, that's a far cry from the. 212 88 975 in 2015. Yeah, we're we're growing all the time and as we get more used to the what we're doing and staff gets more used to it, all our um, pretty much all our staff has come out of rescue work, but not all of them were involved specifically with cat rescue. Some came from rescues that were primarily dog, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but ended up joining our staff and as everybody gets more and more experience with the specifics of cat rescue, our numbers have just gone up massively and we've gotten more and more volunteers we're a volunteer-based organization we have a couple of employees but um we're not wealthy by any means we're always doing fundraising um so our volunteer base is super important to us uh the, the amazing volunteers we have during the pandemic when it struck suddenly we couldn't have volunteers at our shelter what were we going to do uh, well, we became a fostering organization almost overnight, where we had uh, we've had up to a hundred cats at a time uh, being housed in people's homes uh, who are fostering them, and then we do our uh, adoptions online, where people are meeting the cats, primarily meeting them online. So we've had to, you know, just change up entirely our, our methodology these past few months in order to, to keep rescuing animals. And we've done it with great success, which is just a, a tribute to the, the staff and a tribute to the kind hearts of the people who, who work with us and volunteer with us, who take in these little babies. Some of them are, need to be bottle fed. Some of them need uh, injections because they're sick. Uh, you know, there's a lot of care involved, and, and the volunteer base has just been incredible. Very loving, and that's part of the reason I, I love it. Is the people I meet are so loving and compassionate. The people in rescue—it's just—that's not a slam against my fellow performers. You know, they're wonderful people. But uh, particularly when I got in rescue, I was just blown away by the open hearts of the people who care about what happens to these animals. Oh yeah, and and are willing to give of themselves to save their lives. Listeners, if you're wondering what would help with the care of these animals, if you go to kittybungalow.org, there's a button up at the top of the page that says Donate Now. You click on it. You can donate. And you can offer them some money to help with medicine and housing and different things like that. So please, go donate. 
and help with the care of these animals. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. We just uh, had, uh, we're on Amazon, of course, like a lot of charities are, and we just recently, we have a lot of dry food, but we were running short on wet food. So we did a little call out for that. I bought five cases of wet food and sent them over and a lot of other volunteers and just people, we get people around the world, bless their hearts, who aren't even in LA who contribute to us, uh, either grant money or donations, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that keeps the kitties going and um, helps us have happy endings for all these kitties. Um, it, it's a, an amazing thing to see when you've, you've met a baby kitten that you've maybe bottle fed, that you held in the palm of your hand, that its life was precarious at first. We weren't sure, you know, would this kitten make it or not? It doesn't have a mama, and we're trying to take care of it. And then two months later, there it is getting adopted by some family that's thrilled that they're getting this kitten. And the kitten, of course, has been socialized and loves people and is friendly and purrs and, you know, loves everyone is good with children. And there we are seeing it go off to have its its happy little life. Very gratifying. So I, I think anybody who contributes or gets involved in any manner becomes part of the family and, and can share in the, in the joy that we get in and seeing these little animals get a chance at life. I agree. Uh, shifting gears again, where can, uh, if fans want to learn uh, more about you or find you on eventually when this pandemic breaks, keep up on uh, current events, where can they uh, find out more about you? Uh, well, because uh, uh, I'm not as involved in the business anymore, I have not created a page for myself I don't tend to post about the work that I'm doing very often. I'm kind of retreated from a lot of it. So I'm afraid the only real places are um, if they look me up on the IMDB or uh, Wikipedia. Uh, they generally, the fans kind of run the IMDB, and they generally do a pretty good job of, of uh, particularly with anime, uh, which is their interest on uh on writing up what the latest anime projects I may have been involved in are. <clears throat> I will say that online, there's a Doug Stone who's a country singer. And for quite a while, our credits were getting confused. So I kind of years back uh, got myself renamed as Doug Stone voice actor. So I would recommend if anybody does want to look me up, uh, if they're on a Google or, or inquiring elsewhere, that they type in Doug Stone voice actor. And a lot of sites will, uh, will say what projects I've been working on lately. Uh, but I myself don't post much uh, in the way of um, self-promotion. That said, guys, you can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. Doug, I want to thank you for uh, stopping in today and chatting My with pleasure. me and sharing your stories and the work you've done with Kitty Bungalow and getting the word out for them and doing all that. I mean, that... At the end of the day, that that's a passion project. That's you know, that's something you know. Even if you know the pay's not great, it makes you feel good. Oh, absolutely. Well, with Kitty Bungalow, it's the staff. Plus, I, I don't get any money from my work there. I yeah. serve on the board and I do everything gratis. Uh, I end up spending money, <laughs> but our staff, bless their heart, don't work for a great deal of money, and they do it out of passion and love for this kind of work. It's just it's deep embedded in them, uh, and again, that's what's what's beautiful about it. But yeah, I I look at my life and say I've been very lucky. I've been working since I was 16, and I worked in factories and I did dishes and I did every kind of job there was, <clears throat> and then was lucky enough to get into this business and succeed at it and and have a good life at it. So at this point, 
it's a good time to be giving back uh, into the into the world and and to try to do compassionate work and uh, and at the same time, of course, it's very gratifying. Uh, it's what you, you you do learn that by being of service, you are being of service to yourself as well. Every kitty life you every little life you save, you're saving your own life. You're the compassion just it just resonates it's whether it's cats or dogs or anything else i re- highly re- whether people are reading stories to children at schools which i, I used to do uh, whatever it is uh, finding something that uh, is giving and compassionate is a very good heart food for for everybody and listeners i want to leave you with this you don't always have to give of money right most of the times the best gift you can give is give of yourself and it in this instance, you know, giving your time at a shelter or with, you know, other children and stuff like that, those are going to create memories or, in the animal's case, life that will last longer than a $20 toy you buy somebody. So take some time and spend it with someone. You know, it doesn't always have to be money. No, absolutely not. The, the human connection is very important. And whether whether you're tutoring a child or or helping helping a young person with advice or whatever it may be, if, if you know whatever your expertise is, whatever you're good at, whatever you've learned about in life, if you share it with someone and help somebody who's deserving out, whether it's an animal or a young person or an old person who's lonely, whatever, yeah, your time your time and your caring as you say, are worth more than money sometimes, uh, very often are worth more. So, Doug, thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you, and thanks for letting me talk about Kitty Bungalow. Oh, my, my pleasure. And listeners, there's a lot of great podcasts out there, unless you heard it here. Probably just a load of bull spit. So, until next time, take her easy. Ooh-wee, that sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you just held. Be sure to tune in next time.